Welcome to Charles Stanley Radio, podcasts providing economic updates combined with some light-hearted conversation during this time of uncertainty. We talk to people from across Charles Stanley to get their insights and recommendations for life in lockdown. Welcome to the latest podcast from Charles Stanley. I'm Gary White, and today I'm joined by two of our investment managers, Emma Folden-Patterson and Giles McKee. We're here to discuss the so-called green revolution. So what is this green revolution and why does it matter to investors? Uh, should we start with you, Emma? Could you uh, give us a, a brief summary of that large topic? <laughs> yes, of course. So I think the green revolution has been classed by some as the better future for all. And that's really based on the understanding that global warming is primarily caused by fossil fuels and the combustion of them. And if we were to transition to clean energy, thereby reducing the combustion of fossil fuels, we should reduce the pace of global climate change. Now, this has really been um, ratified by the United Nations through the Paris Agreement, which was signed in 2015 by the majority of countries. And this Paris Agreement was really aimed to address greenhouse gas emissions, adaptation and finance. And what the Paris Agreement is aiming to do, it has a long term goal of reducing the global temperature increase to less than two degrees above pre-industrial levels within this century. So that's really committing to reduce pollution and strengthen the commitment to renewable energy and alternative energy um, sources over the longer term. Excellent, thanks. And, and Giles, you know, this is yeah. this is actually gathering pace now, this Green Revolution, isn't it? Especially with the election of uh, Joe Biden in America. Yeah, I think this is a, a really, really exciting moment. Um, so I think, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I had this plan that the way to achieve world peace was to fake an alien invasion, um, because that was the way you could get the entire of humanity to unite as one in one common purpose and goal. And I think what one sort of consequence of the terrible catastrophe of uh, COVID-19 is that it has unified the whole world to the idea that our lives can be turned upside down and that we are not invincible. Um, and that is uh, combining with uh, you know, the election of Joe Biden and the EU Green Deal and uh, governments around the world recommitting to put more money and more loan guarantees and more legislation towards driving us towards this target of um, increasing renewables and uh, becoming more energy efficient and uh, the transition of uh, transport and uh, all areas to uh, being a more sustainable sustainable society. Um, so it's it feels like a really exciting moment because all the all the technologies being sort of developed you know lots of money's been going into the development over the last 20 years or so and it's it feels like it's sort of coming along at just the right time um that, that we're getting this sort of combination of factors that are going to drive this forward i think 2021 is an, an exciting year for um for uh, certainly in electric cars um we'll get we're seeing a lot more releases from all the major manufacturers um, which was Elon Musk's goal at the start, was to drive the main manufacturers to put more of their money um, into, into electric cars. And the figures for the big manufacturers are just enormous. There's 25 or 30 billion from Volkswagen, 25 or 30 billion from General Motors. And all the big companies are throwing tens of billions of dollars um, at electric cars now. So it, uh, it just shows how, how one company is sort of leading the charge to manage to change the whole industry and drive everyone forward. It's, it's 
it's really great news, um, which uh, there's little of that about at the moment. So I think this is something yes. uh, really, <laughs> really, really good. companies that are committing to increased investment. Um, you know, governments are actually putting real money behind the whole green revolution mm -hmm. idea. Um, Europe's got a $1 trillion <laughs> green deal plan. Mm -hmm. um, and they have the Green New Deal in the US that Mr. Biden's going to introduce is $1.7 mm -hmm. over 10 years, hoping to get that up to uh, $5 trillion with private investment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting, the phrasing of this in America, the Green New Deal. I mean, that obviously echoes Roosevelt's New Deal, something you were mentioning, Giles, about, you know, the, the COVID situation and coming out of a crisis and creating jobs. I mean, Roosevelt's New Deal got America out of the 1920s depression, you yeah. know, as well as building the Hoover Dam and reforming the banking industry. It produced a political realignment in America that resulted in the Democrats winning the next seven out of nine presidential elections. So, you know, just by calling it the Green New Deal, he's stating just how ambitious this plan is. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a huge amount of money that, that, that is guaranteed by government. It's, so, you know, what other um, what other areas do you see being good sources of investment over the next few years as a result of this new money coming into this revolution? Uh, do you want to take that, Emma? Yeah, of course. So I think, yes, the US are, have made a, a massive pledge to um, reduce their um, contribution to climate change. But I think actually the most interesting area at the moment is China. They have also pledged to be net carbon zero by 2060. And I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think most people know this, but China is actually responsible for 28% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, which is a huge amount. That represents more than both the US and the EU combined. In order for China to hit this carbon neutral target, they actually have to reduce their emissions by 90%. So they are the biggest contributor to climate change at the moment. And if they manage to fulfill this effort, their attempts alone could reduce global warming projections by 0 0.2, 0 0.3 of a degree centigrade, which is massive when the Paris Agreement is aiming for a two degree change. So, you know, they're, they're a big contributor. And whilst they are the biggest problem and the biggest contributor to climate change, they are also one of the largest investors and producers and um, consumers of renewable energy. Just by way of example, they have over half of the world's electric passenger vehicles and 98% of the world's electric buses. So China, whilst being the largest part of the problem, they're also a massive source of the solution. So I think they're a really interesting country to keep an eye on going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are all excellent points. Um, and it's, it's interesting that um, in terms of one of the sort of main targets that, that we've sort of the world has at the moment is sort of cutting out coal um, and reducing coal generation, which we've pretty much achieved in the UK. And it's scaling that down all around the world. Um, and there's there's interesting developments in, in this regard. Um, and there's a UK company, just a small, very small company called Cymec Atlantis, which is working on converting a coal-fired power plant to burning um, non-renewable waste. So it's sort of a bit of a two birds with one stone technology they're working on there which is waste that can't be recycled and would otherwise have to go into landfill. If they can burn it in a converted coal fire power plant instead, um, and they're saying the emissions are similar to gas generation, um, then that could be a really great stopgap for the next sort of 20, 30 years or so, while we try to scale down coal and then scale down natural gas after that um, to help reduce uh, the amount of coal burn for generating energy. Because China, even as Emma says, is 
leading the way in, in many regards with electric vehicles and uh, renewable uh, development um, is also still a, a very large burner of coal. Um, so their efforts are going to be huge and any technology that helps that um, is going to be make a big difference. Of course, we saw the value of energy from waste with the sale of Pennon's Viridor recently. Uh, I mean, it was a, a similar technology to you're talking about. It wasn't the conversion of coal power stations, but, you know, their shares were supported all the way through this crisis because they had an offer for their energy from waste units. So, you know, there is real value in creating a, these, these businesses. Uh, and that's been demonstrated in the last few months. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just think, you know, to Giles's point about coal producers, I think it's, the long-term goal of reducing the use of coal is is a necessity. However, over the shorter term, we have to be very mindful of the fact that coal producers are one of the main drivers of the steel industry, and the steel industry is very much required. They are the mainstay of solar panels, wind farms, the electrification of uh, power grids. So we really, we may, as an inadvertent side effect, actually see an increase in um, coal use in the coming years to try and yes. to try and support these green agendas. Yes, it's a long term goal to reduce the use of coal, but I do think as a byproduct over the short term, we may actually see it increase, and that's going to be a major challenge for coal producers mm. to figure out how on earth they can generate steel whilst without using coal. Yeah, um, you know that Poland obviously was one of the major coal producers in Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. So you know, central to Europe's Green Deal is you know uh, having investment to help these coal-producing regions move away from producing coal and and invest in other industry because otherwise, you know, the poles aren't really going to support that this, this uh, at the European Commission. So this, mm -hmm. this it has to be managed. You know, there's no sort of cliff edge going to going to happen here. It's going to be a slow process, as, as as you know, Giles said, over twenty or thirty years as we move away and produce these clean energy um, things. So um, we've talked about China, America, we've talked about other countries, Europe. Uh, what about the UK? You know, are we joining in with this green revolution? Giles? Um, yes. Um, well, Boris has been a, a long term, um, long term fan of renewables and uh, certainly is, is saying that we're the UK is going to be spending a lot of money in this this regard. Um, they're they're certainly looking at trying to put money into building out the charging infrastructure for electric cars, um, because certainly small small European countries like us are are um, absolutely perfect for uh, electric transportation um, because we don't have to cover uh, such long distances as they do in in America and, and China. Um, so, I mean, I think the distance from Land's End to John O'Groats is around about 800 miles. So there's, and with a number of electric cars sort of going over 300 miles of range, and in fact, one from a company called Lucid develop, delivering 500 miles of range. It means that if you, if you did live in Land's End and woke up and had to drive to John O'Groats in one shot, you would only have to stop for charging for half an hour or 40 minutes once or once or twice. Um, so that, that really is, um, you know, the, it feels like the electric cars have sort of won in you know European countries. It's now, in for most people, in most cases, a, a better product than a uh, combustion engine. And it's more convenient. You're not going to have to visit a petrol station um, and ever again. And uh, on the odd day of the year where you do drive more than 250 or 300 miles in a day, you have to stop for half an hour or 40 minutes. Um, so it's it's now a better product, and it's going to save you money over the long term as well. Um, so it's it's very exciting, and uh, yeah, the government is you know doing its best to support that. 
um, and certainly lots of supermarkets are putting in charges and it's it's all um, looking looking very positive. Yeah, it's just a question of getting the infrastructure in there so that, you know, it's yeah. easy to find that place to stop for half an hour. Um, Emma, you know, have, have you got any comments on, on the UK, what we're doing and this, this new trend? Yeah, um, I mean, so Boris announced uh, back in November that he's going to commit £12 billion of government investment into the green revolution we've called our Green Deal, a 10-point green revolution. And as part of that, he's not just looking at renewable energy and reducing our carbon emissions, he's also focusing on biodiversity. So he has pledged that we as a country will plant 30,000 hectares of trees a year by 2025. So, you know, it's just proving Boris's commitment, not only to carbon emissions, but also to improving our biodiversity as well. And I think what's very interesting about uh, Boris's plan is that this isn't just a political statement. He has fought for it now to become a legal obligation that we achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Mm -hmm. And I know that the EU are close behind us. The EU's Green Deal isn't yet a legal obligation, but there is pressure for that to happen. And I think this is very fascinating and it's a very, very interesting time because if we're making it a legal obligation, it then also falls to the lawmakers to allow innovation and to allow companies to create new products and new ways of thinking. And Boris has really dovetailed his green revolution in with our COVID recovery. And he said that he thinks that our green revolution will help create a quarter of a million new jobs in the UK, and it'll help drive innovation in the new post-COVID world. So I think he's taken a very, a slightly different stance. He's dovetailed COVID and the green revolution together to really drive this post-pandemic world. And I think to a certain extent, he's channeled um, Churchill, who we all know as his idol, to sort of drive this new Britain forward. Yeah, I mean, there is a truth in that. I mean, the, 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 the tragedy that has been COVID-19 has accelerated this process, um, you know, whether implicitly or explicitly stated, because, you know, governments now need a vast job creation programme. So, you know, this trend has been accelerated by the pandemic that we faced over the last year, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so I think it's, as you say, it's it's factors coming together at the same time, which is needing to create a lot of jobs um, because we do think you know, you know, that unemployment is looks likely to rise dram quite dramatically when, um, when the restrictions are released, as uh, many people have been kept employed by furlough. Um, I think the latest estimates are around about unemployment rising to close to seven or eight percent in the UK. Um, so we need to create an awful lot of jobs. And with interest rates at you know, practically zero, 0.2 or 0.3 percent or so for the UK 10-year bond, it means that you, you're ideally placed to increase government debt and spend um, the extra money without it costing you too much to create jobs and try to build out build out the infrastructure that we need um, in order to move towards this more sustainable world. Thanks. Uh, Emma, do you have anything else to add to that? No, I completely agree with Giles's point. You know, the biggest criticism of Boris's 10-point Green Revolution is that he's committing to spend only 12 billion, where we've seen the EU commit to spend 1 trillion over the next 10 years and the US to spend $1.7 trillion over the next uh, 10 years. So by comparison, our commitment and our government spend is relatively small. So I think, as Giles mentioned, this low interest rate environment will allow Boris to spend more than what he's committing to today if, if we feel like this is the right way to go. And I think it is the right way to go, but only time will tell 
how the funds get deployed and how much support this gains from the private sector. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think um, I, I certainly hope that the, the government spending will be increased, but I do certainly see there as there's danger in trying to throw too much money at something too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we can we can see that there are certainly areas where money should be spent, like uh, upgrading the power cable so they can take the increase in power needed for electric transportation. Um, and we can see there's, you know, uh, certainly wind turbines are very cost effective nowadays. So there's certainly lots of areas that one can already see that money should just be um, increased dramatically to. Um, but then there are other sort of emerging technologies where one doesn't want to commit too much too quickly um, until the sort of case has been proved, like potentially with hydrogen, mm -hmm. um, where we can see it's hydrogen is getting you know closer to um, to being uh, you know useful, and there's plenty of you know, hydrogen buses and demonstrations around, and it looks like you know things things are getting a lot closer there. Um, but one doesn't want to move too fast too quickly. Exactly. These are all emergent new technologies. And, you know, you have to see how, how things develop because this isn't a short term plan. This is, you know, this is a long term trend that is being embedded. Uh, and, you know, um, clearly there's going to be lots of winners from it. But there's also going to be lots of losers if we accept mm. that this is the way things going over the next 20 years. And, you know, the first yeah. thing that you think about is oil companies. Um, I mean, Emma, you know, there, there are going to be losers from the Green Revolution too, aren't there? I mean, absolutely. And I think the oil majors are, are on the face of it, obvious losers. They are, you know, traditional oil and gas companies have extracted oil from the ground and burnt fossil fuels. However, tarnishing all oil majors with the same brush is sort of a sweeping disservice. You know, companies mm. such as BP, I mean, BP has already rebranded itself as Beyond Petroleum, you know, committing to move away from its traditional oil and gas business. And back in February last year, they got a new CEO who introduced very ambitious targets to be net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So I think there are companies that are doing less well as there are in any you know developments throughout the world and there are others that are doing better you know shell for instance has been spending seven percent of its capital expenditure over the last four years on renewable energy so they are committed to finding alternative energy solutions i mean the big pitfalls for companies such as shell is as part of their pledge to become carbon neutral by 2050 they announced plans to divest some of their core refining business and I think they have eight refineries that they're looking to either dispose of or repurpose. And the first one went on the market, I think, in the middle of last year. And this was in Louisiana. And they just they announced sort of at the back end of last year that unfortunately they're going to have to shut that coal mine down because they cannot find a good buyer. So I think we will see some of these oil majors um, be saddled with so-called stranded assets and stranded assets are assets that have suffered sort of unanticipated write-downs and devaluations as a result of the changing landscape that we're in. So I think on the one side, we, we have some oil majors making very positive steps in the right direction, but they are going to be hampered on the other hand by owning assets that are now deemed to be unattractive. And this investment programme does mean, you know, returns of potential margins are going to be lower because they're investing a lot of a lot more of their cash in these renewable things. That's why BP and Shell cut their dividends last year. I mean, that, that wasn't a temporary cut that was anything to do with COVID. That was a strategic long-term measure because, you know, 
uh, being in the oil industry, has been a license to print money for quite a long time now. Um, it's not going to be that way anymore, you know, because the oil industry has been controlled by cartels, prices, you know, set by OPEC, so margins were all particularly large. Um, and, and so, you know, you know there, is, there are challenges for these oil majors going forward as well. Um, uh, but, you know, investors need to accept that the oil industry is not going to generate the returns in the future that it has done in the past because of all this investment that is needed to move away from hydrocarbons. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it. I think it's it's really interesting that uh, the Danish company now known as Orsted, that used to be Dong Energy, used to be an oil and gas major, and then gradually over the last of ten or twenty years transitioned to become you know purely almost almost purely renewables. Um, and uh, Orsted's share price has gone from sort of has sort of gone up about sort of one hundred and fifty to two hundred percent over the last two or three years. Um, whereas BP and Shell quite clearly have uh, gone in the other direction. Um, so companies that started to move on this earlier have been rewarded by investors, and that, I think, will continue to drive you know, the executives, these oil majors, to continue moving away um, from oil and gas, not only from the economics, but also they can see from uh, the, the investors are steering them in that direction. And, you know, investors are saying, we want you to move. Um, so they've got a license term, these sort of, slightly return, lower returns on equity potentially um, from investing in renewable projects than they would have done from their oil and gas. I, I think, I remember there was a quote from, I think it was the chief executive of Shell about a few years ago where he was basically, he, he highlighted that, uh, that Shell's capex and depreciation was about sort of 10% of its assets. So he said, we basically build a new Shell every 10 years. Um, so the shell that they're going to build over the next 10 years um, is going to be extremely different from the uh, mm -hmm. shell they've had over the last 10 years. Um, so I think uh, they will be, they're going to have to move away from all of their historic um, activity, driven not just by government regulation, but also what their investors are telling them they want to do and what, and what, what is the, it's what everything is directing them to do. Um, so, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to continue earning reasonable returns from some of their existing oil assets and we're not um, moving to using no oil within the next few years there's still many decades of lots of oil use mm. um, so it's it, um, as much as we would like that not to be the case and even when we're not using it for transportation anymore it's still you know, used for many other industries like plastics um, quite so you know the green, the green revolution yeah. you, that sort of implies that it's going to be some fast process but it's really a green evolution rather than a, a revolution because yeah. it is going to take you know decades really this process this isn't this is something that is not going to be a major major shift with a cliff edge as i said earlier it is a slow moving process um so both of you are you know managing money on behalf of your clients are you sort of invested in this theme at the moment emma Yes, we are. We're very much invested in seeing this area and focusing on identifying companies and areas that we think will be beneficiaries of this slow transition during the Green Revolution, as we've just touched on. We're not going to wake up tomorrow in a brave new world. This is going to be a very gradual process. And I think it's going to have to be very, very carefully managed because, you know, we, we are speaking about this topic from a developed country standpoint. But what we have to remember on the other side is that 10% of our population lives in abject poverty and much of their country's wealth is dependent on the exports of hydrocarbons. So, you know, this transition away from hydrocarbons could threaten the livelihoods of these vulnerable people and could potentially lead to political instability if we're not careful. So 
yes, we are desperate to drive this innovation, but it has to be done in a very careful and very well-managed manner. And, you know, at a stock level, we are still holders of some of the oil majors. We've you know, identified the oil majors that we believe have made good investments and good inroads into, into reducing their carbon emissions and transitioning away from carbon. And we believe that they will be beneficiaries in this area because at the end of the day, some of the oil majors have been investing in this area for the last decade. Whilst it wasn't a major part of their capital expenditure, it was still a large part of, you know, they're still streets ahead of some other companies. So I think we have to acknowledge that we can't tarnish all oil majors with the same brush, but we do at this point in time have to be much more active and much more discerning about which companies we look at in this area. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Giles? Yep, absolutely. Um, so I think I think what's interesting is exactly. So I've been writing my my uh, six monthly reports recently and um, going through um, every single holding. And I think what's interesting is how many you know European investment trusts um, and Asian investment trusts and you know, uh, investment trusts and funds all around the world. How many of the reports mention how the fund is benefiting? Um, or position to benefit from uh, the green revolution and increased investment in these areas. Um, so it's and it's it's interesting the amount of companies that one wouldn't think of that are making progress. So one that was highlighted to me was uh, Lafarge Holson, the cement manufacturer, and which is you know it's about as far from a green renewable energy companies you could get. Um, but it's actually uh, in the top 20% of companies ranked by Sustainalytics and is number one in terms of building materials. because it's been investing huge amounts of money in transitioning towards more sustainable materials. So there's there's all these companies that uh, are going through change and you know everyone's aware of, of this change. And there are lots of companies one wouldn't necessarily think of that are making interesting strides and making big changes and big improvements. Um, so it's not just the areas one immediately thinks of like uh, electric cars and hydrogen and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and I think in, in that area, certainly there are risks that uh, things have, have got a bit overheated um, <laughs> with Tesla worth $800 billion a day, or is it 600 billion or trillion dollars? It's, it's, it's uh, getting to the point where uh, things look like they've they've got a gone a bit too far. Um, it's I think one could with the valuations of electric car companies and the valuations of self-driving car companies, one could make the case that General Motors would be worth a lot more money <laughs> if it stopped making profits. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, if if General Motors just if they just shut down all their profitable businesses, you know, s- still selling. Uh, trucks that uh, make them lots of money um, and instead uh, were just a pure play on electric cars and self-driving technology, uh, they'd be worth more money. Um, And that, of course, doesn't make any sense. Um, So I think that whilst I think we're all extremely positive on this and um, it is certainly something that's happening and very positive for the planet and positive for investment portfolios in lots of ways, it's important to not get carried away and uh, it's important to keep an eye on valuations. And it's starting to feel almost a little bit like uh, canals and railways and electricity and the internet, which is, yes, this is a big change, uh, but all those things uh, also had lots of investors that lost a lot of money getting too carried away and investing in them. 
when exactly you know this, um, this so. is not exactly you know this hasn't been a secret this isn't a surprise these have all been very well yeah. trailed i mean this was a central part of joe biden's election uh mm -hmm. platform uh and you know brussels has been talking about their green deal and debating it and get it through the various arcane processes um for a very long time so you know emma it's like choosing investments is actually quite a challenge at the moment because it's arguably a crowded trade it's, it's absolutely a crowded trade in some areas i think to touch on giles's note again it really is about going back to the fundamentals and looking at a business from the bottom up whilst you know there may be three or four companies doing the same thing you need to identify the one where the margins make the most sense where the return on capital makes the most sense to you and it really will be about keeping an eye on those fundamentals and on the valuations and we're already seeing some news outlets start to mention an esg bubble and you know they're saying that there's just money pouring into esg investments which shouldn't be going in there so i think Yes, it's a crowded area and yes, it's a very, very interesting topic, which people are very keen to support. But I think the way to navigate this is to take a step back and to actually look at the investments that you're making and think, why am I doing that? Now, you may end up saying, I'd like to retain my holding in an oil major because as an investor, I can engage with management to create change within that firm. You may decide that you'd rather divest that holding entirely, but you have to when you're looking at the green revolution, it's such a personal thing and it's so subjective that you'll invest in line with your values. So this is where it blurs the line between purely risk adjusted returns and how you would like your own views to be reflected in your portfolio. Yeah, and that's really sort of a very important thing about ESG investing, you know, environmental, social and mm -hmm. governance is that, you know, the ability for a company to change and the direction of travel rather than a snapshot of looking at, you know, some data at, at this point without because all these scores take in the direction of travel and the influence you have over management and the way things are going so it's you know there is a larger assessment than just looking today how much mm. carbon a company emits it's far more complicated than that isn't it Very, it is it absolutely is and i think these companies are moving so fast and there's also an element of secrecy because they don't want their competitors to know what they're looking at so actually you'd you tend to not find out what they're doing until after the fact. So people, and particularly um, scoring companies, are uh, they're, they're employing full-time analysts to look at single sectors of the industry to try and ascertain who's doing better than who and who's doing worse than who. So for instance, Total, the um, oil and gas company, are doing very, very well at reducing their carbon emissions, whilst companies like ExxonMobil aren't. And I think you probably 10 years ago, would you have thought Total would have emerged as a winner in this area? I don't think you would have done by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, looking at an overall ESG score, it's a very wide sweeping and far reaching score. You know, it's looking at the social elements of a company, whether it has good corporate governance, whether it has policies for board remuneration. So it really is, why are you looking at a company and what do you want that company to do for you? Are you just looking at it to access new and up and coming trends or are you there to engage and actually elicit real change? Excellent. Yeah. So, you know, we could talk about this all day, uh, uh, but, you know, let, I think we should round this up now. And um, we've had a conclusion from Giles, really. So, Emma, have you got anything else you'd like to add? I mean, what are your your uh, the snapshots of your, your view on this right now? I think this is, a, this is a really exciting time, particularly for this area, 
the coronavirus pandemic accelerated our move towards cleaner energy. And this has only been further reinforced by countries such as the UK, China, the US and the EU committing significant amounts of money to improving their carbon emissions and improving their stance on climate change. So I think it's a very, very interesting time for the whole area with governments really driving the change. But I think it does require an element of caution. You know, as with anything where there's significant amounts of money invested in an area, caution's required for you to take a, take a step back and look at individual areas and to ascertain where you think the winners and losers will be. Because as with any period of change, there will be companies that emerge much stronger and there'll be those that don't. Yeah, super. Thank you. So, yeah, so, you know, it's a very interesting subject. There's government money supporting this trend. Um, we, we sort of see it as a more of an evolution rather than a revolution. We're not going to see anything happen overnight. Uh, and, you know, it's a very complex matter that you can't, you know, just look at that what's happening today. You have to consider the direction of travel and the way things are in the future because we're talking about a 20, 30 year time frame. I think that's what summarises up. There are great opportunities out there, but, you know, you need to mind your eye because, you know, a lot of the trades are quite crowded. Um, so thank you very much for joining me today, Emma and Giles. And thanks for listening out there. And I hope you join us on our next Charles Stanley podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Charles Stanley Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it offered a small escape from life under lockdown. Please subscribe to be kept up to date with our latest releases. If you have any questions or comments about the content covered in today's episode, or any questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, then please do email these to events at charles-stanley.co.uk. Once again, thank you for listening, and as always, stay safe. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Investors may get back less than invested. Past performance is not a reliable guide to the future.